I'm Simon Blake, and this is Just About Coping. Firstly, a huge thank you to everybody who's joined in with our My Whole Self campaign and shared your fabulous My Whole Selfies. It's been really encouraging to see so many of you embracing the message and sharing a bit more about yourselves, how you'll stay connected and how you'll support each other. Remember, there's some useful tips about how to look after yourself and support your colleagues while you're working from home during this period. Please do check them out on our website, mhfaengland.org. Also, do let us know how you're getting on. You can tweet me at Simon A. Blake and use the hashtags JACpodcast and my whole self. What are you doing to look after yourself during this extraordinary time? How are you helping each other and staying connected? We'd love to hear it from you and hear your tips. So on to this week's episode, which is my conversation with Ada Paris. Ada is a workplace culture strategist and describes herself as a futurist, storyteller and artist. We had a fascinating conversation about being human, about identity, about shifting personas in different contexts, about Ada finding her voice and her activism, about going to Burning Man and applying the 10 principles of the gathering into her everyday life. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Ada. Thanks very much for coming into my office to talk to me about my whole self and mental health and well-being. Thank you for having me. So just to kick us off, the easiest or the hardest question, depending on how you think of it, if you had five words or five phrases to describe yourself, what would they be? Oh, um, the first would be human, uh, enthusiastic, um, loyal, curious, activist. Okay, so human was your first yeah. one. Tell a bit more about why you chose human. Um, I think that we have got to a place where we have so many different labels um, for people, for identities, and it feels like we are, I once described it to a friend, it feels like we're trying to slice a Rizzler up in the idea of these multiple identities. And I think it's important that people are able to self-identify. But I think that sometimes there's too much um, emphasis, there's too much pressure sometimes for people to live up to a particular label or to try and fit into the societal idea of what that is. But at the very heart of everything, we're all human. And so I go back to that point of, at the most basic level of anything, I'm human. And so how does that link to your activism? So to go to your last, yeah. your last word. So activism to me is not necessarily about just going on protest marches. It's the belief in something bigger than myself, mm. that there is there, there's something that I want to change in, in a societal way. And it's also about finding my voice and knowing and being able to speak my truth, but also then finding the others to be able to help come together as a movement to amplify that. So activism for me is that whole process Mm -hmm. of believing in something bigger than myself, using my voice and finding the others and amplification of the message. Um, And we've obviously, this is the first time that we've met and it's a real pleasure meeting you. And within the first five minutes, I discover that you've done one of my bucket list things, which is that you have (laughs) been to Burning Man. Uh, And I guess when I think of Burning Man, and my own experience going to Glastonbury, that was my experience going to Glastonbury was part of realising that I had a voice and wanted to have a voice. 
And I get the sense from our very short conversation about Burning Man that it might also connect into your activism in some way. Yeah. Um, I Actually, do you want to tell people what Burning Man is? Yes. <laughs> so Burning Man um, is a, well, it started off as a counterculture um, gathering. I wouldn't say it's a festival. I think it's a gathering. Some people look at it as a retreat. Some people call it home, going home. I think that's how I refer to it. Um, it is a gathering of, I think, nearly 90,000 people in the desert in Nevada where you build a temporary city. Mm. Um, and the only things that you can buy are ice and coffee. And so you have this, there are 10 guiding principles. Let's see if I can remember many of them. Uh, radical self-expression, civic responsibility, participation, uh, communal effort, uh, immediacy. So there's a few of these things. And I remember the first, so I've been three times in a row. And the first time I went, there were 17 of us and we built our own camp. And I learned that next time I will definitely be taking an air mattress. <laughs> um, but the things that mattered to me was the fact that when I first went, you know, everybody who goes is supposed to embody and live to the 10 principles. And I remember thinking at first was, oh, my God, it's costuming, radical self-expression, it's costumes. But actually, and I went out and bought loads of stuff and thought, right, I'm going to wear this and that. And you get out there and the most beautiful thing is that you are surrounded. It was the first time I can honestly remember, and I'm getting goosebumps about it, honestly remember being surrounded by people who were just freely expressing themselves. Mm. And there was no measure of comparing yourself to anybody else. And so that's the radical self-expression that there are, you know, if people want to walk around naked, they can. If people want to wear a glitter ball suit, they can. It was this whole process of being free to express your whole self. Mm. Um, for me, I did it three times in a row. And what happened was the first time, yes, you arrive and it looks like Mad Max, something out of Mad Max, and you're completely blown away and your whole reference completely changes but it's also expensive mm -hmm. and I spent an average of three thousand pounds a time wow. to go and that was cheap doing it and I have a degree in maths and I was like three grand a time to spend one week of the year being completely myself the maths does not add up so I decided that I'm going to take the 10 principles off the plier mm. and apply them to my life mm. and so that is how I've started applying it to my life and my business that sounds amazing. And I think uh, we can make sure we get the 10 principles in the notes yeah. to this um, podcast. So it sounds like my next question, therefore, needs to be, and what has it meant to start applying those 10 principles into your life and into your work life? Um, well, the I came back and realised that I hadn't been being my full self. I think there were levels of anxiety about, you know, I think that we all as humans have multiple personas, mm. you know, and I was brought up Catholic convent school, but I'm an artist and a hippie and all these different things. And what we tend to, what I find we tend to do is we tend to persona switch mm -hmm. depending on which environment we're in. Mm. So, you know, with my family, you know, my family, I was one person or one version of myself. And with, in the office, I was another version of myself. And with friends, I was another version of myself. And so that switching is exhausting. Mm. Mm. And realising that the common denominator of all of that is me. There's only one version of me. And so I 
taking their self, the idea of radical self-expression was working around, taking it off the plier, was working to understand how can I be all of those different things? What's the, what connects all the dots of all those different things of who I am? And then how can I take that and step into every single environment with that? But what that means is I'm taking the essence of all of them mm. and the characteristics of all of them. And this is where being self-aware comes into it, being in different environments. It may be that I'm not going to walk into a corporate bank and start acting like I would at Burning Man, mm. you know, but there are skills and characteristics that of that version of myself mm. that could be useful. Yeah, you've, without me even asking, you've taken us right to the heart of what the My Whole Self campaign is about. And... I guess before I just talk a little bit more about that, can you tell us about your professional journey? So far, yeah. we've learned you're an activist, you've got a maths degree, you're an <laughs> artist, you're a hippie, you're a culture change person, and what you're doing is trying, finding yourself. So tell us a bit more, a bit about your professional journey. Um, I've had a very interesting journey. I mentioned the maths degree at uni. I did pure and applied maths, wow. but I was training to be a primary school teacher. Didn't quite like the education system in this country. So I decided that actually what's more important to me is to understand how people learn. And so changed, so did educational studies and maths. Came out of uni, needed a job, um, had some really interesting ones, document storage company, that me with a fax machine and a warehouse. I mean, if people can remember what fax machines are, I'm given my age. <laughs> but, you know, it's it been well. these kind of journeys of... Uh, first job was document storage company, then was a mechanical copyright. Spent six years working at London Business School, um, initially as a secretary, helping to put together the marketing bit of the MBA programs. Um, and my natural curiosity meant I read everything and then eventually went on to their Centre for Marketing Evening program, so got into marketing communications, wanted to work in advertising, but never at an agency. So... To get into advertising, I went and worked at the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, which is a membership organisation for agencies. Started there as a researcher, and they used to run lots of committees. And again, me being, oh, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. And this is the inner child. Well, my, my inner child leaks out a lot. So the ch inner child and wanting to learn... Um, I volunteered to look after lots of their committees, a few of their committees, and I chose direct marketing, strategy, business communications and ethnic diversity. Mm. And I ran those for the UK advertising industry and ended up moving over, helping to build the communities team, build a summer school, which became the industry's graduate programme. From there, got uh, recruited, headhunted, met this amazing guy called Mark Lewis, who was relaunching something called the School of Communication Arts, mm. which is a advertising creativity school that is uh, set up and run and partially funded by the industry. So I left a full-time job to go to what was essentially a startup, and people thought I was mad. But the school has been running for 12 years. Um, I don't have any birth children of my own, but I have 12 years of cohorts of young people, of people coming through that who are my children, who call me mum. And it's one of my biggest achievements. From there, went off to Burning Man. That was the start of it. Um, came back and went to work for Telefonica um, to help build their accelerator programme, Wira. So a technology accelerator programme. Um, then started doing, because I had been talking about my 
experiences at Burning Man and identity and being very clear with people that, and by that time I was running my own business, very clear that um, whenever I need to have the summer off, I need to have July and August off or the end of, because I need to go to Burning Man because that's my therapy. That Mm. is my, Mm. you know, and people going, oh, you can't do that. I said, you've hired me to be the person that I am. And if you want me to maintain and continue to be that person, then I need to do the stuff that feeds me. Mm-hmm. And so it was very unusual for people to say, you know, but it was in all my agreements that if I'm going to do this, I have to have that time. And they agreed to it. And so then, but what also happened then was that people say, oh, how did you build your personal brand? Because you are able to go into coots and go into these different places but still run off around the desert at Burning Man with a headdress and, you know, after an art car. And so started doing a lot of workshops around personal brand identity, but also still into tech. Moved into something, uh, an organisation called the Friday Club, where it brings technology startups together with marketing people. And my role then became a futurist because I understood the tech but I still brought my hippie, spiritual, human side into it. And so whenever I was organising an event, say, on transhumanism or blockchain, I would say, yeah, but what about the human? How is it impacting the human? Mm. And that's where I started to look at the ideas of human blockchains and all sorts of stuff. Wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I'm sure lots of people will be listening to that in the same way that I just have and... The next question has to be, how do you hold yourself through all of those things? You started by talking about the essence of you. And I'm just fascinated about, you know, is it a snowball that's gathering as you're doing all those things or are some things being shed? How would you describe the essence of you through that journey? I think what drives me is this innate sense of curiosity and awe. Um, I make sense of my surroundings by really engaging my senses of what's the smell and what's the taste and what's the flavour and all of that. And I think that sometimes that's how people perceive a child. But actually we're all like that and I think that we shut that off Mm -hmm. Um, or we have it educated out of us or we have this, going back to the idea of labels and trying to live up to them, that we feel, oh, we can't be like that in the office. Mm. We can't do that and, you know... I think I made the comment earlier that my inner child leaks out. Mm -hmm. She does. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is that drive. However, the flip side of that is that I have had two and a half burnouts. And I say half because I caught myself. I recognised the signs. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting isn't it that sense of curiosity mm-hmm. you know and and you talked about the bits which leak out yeah. you know if they're not if, if everything's not not allowed and I guess I would just be interested in your sense about what being your whole self means in the context of work I always have an uncomfortable reaction to the language of my whole self especially I think when it's in this kind of corporate world environment because what does that mean? What is it? I think it means different things to different people and it feels like sometimes workplaces are trying to package up humanity Mm -hmm. and maybe 
the uncomfortability comes from questioning the motivations, the real motivations behind why those questions, well, why those questions are being asked mm. and why now? Why weren't they done in the first place? Um, and who is going to decide what whole really means? So I think for me, the whole issue in this is that absolutely we are all human yeah. all of the time. But sometimes we're expected to shed half of ourselves at the door, whether that's the issues which are going on at home mm-hmm. for us, parts of our identity yeah. of which you know we, we can't talk about. We know uh, 62% of people go back into the closet in their first job, having been out you know, previously. Some people feel as though their work isn't credited, women of colour. That's a particular issue. Some people are talked over uh, and not recognised in yeah. meetings and their eyes, uh, the ideas taken for. And some people just go into self-preservation mode, mm-hmm. going in. So for me, it is very much that sense of actually... If we're self-protecting, if we're hiding, if we don't feel seen, if we don't feel heard, we can only do part of what we're able to. And if you think about your journey, the power and innovation and creativity, that didn't come presumably in places where you felt squashed. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for your honest and open answer. Um, I think that what a lot of what you're talking about is also the idea of diversity and inclusion. And I, again, that's something else I find really interesting as a conversation piece, because on a microscopic level, we as humans would not exist without diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. The world would not exist without it. So it is fundamental to life. And I think that we spend so much time focusing on is diversity and inclusion good or is it bad? It's fundamental. So we don't, I, I think that we should... It, rather than trying to unpick that, especially in the workplace when we're talking about mental health and some of the stuff that you've been speaking about, I think that our focus needs to be on what is the impact on those who've been othered mm-hmm. constantly in the work environment. What happens to their psyche of having to hold all those things back? Yeah, It's not just creating the spaces, it's what already has been the impact, the longer tail impact of people who've got to this space. Yeah. And they through their life experiences, not just in the office. Yeah. You know, as a, as a black woman in this world, the first thing that people see is my colour. Mm. And so it's not just when I walk through the door of an office with, or with a client that that's, a, that's where they see it. So I'm bringing all of that with me. That is part of my whole self. Yeah. And, and I guess there's something, isn't there, in, in what you're saying, absolutely the argument of whether diversity and inclusion is a bad thing or a good thing, it just is. Well, I think that ego, I think that our ego is what gets in the way. You know, our ego of, I'm going to decide that we are going to have a great diversity policy and I'm going to decide that we are going to do all these things. That's where the um, the divide comes. What's, what's the impact of that on me? What's the impact of changing and creating a truly systemic diversity policy? I mean, the fact that you have to create one is an interesting one. I read something the other day that there's going to be, um, I think in America, they're going to make it illegal for this or discrimination against hair. The fact that you even have to do that tells me... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hair. Oh, so... uh, (laughs) 
there's a great book by um, Emma Diabry yeah. that is Don't Touch My Hair. Sure. Yeah, about black people and hair. But discrimination. Discrimination. So people get this. In the you know, workplace. Yeah, people, uh, in the workplace, yeah. in schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. People of colour, especially with Afro hair, yeah, texture yeah, yeah, hair, yeah, yeah. are discriminated against. Yeah. Even in the workplace. Yeah. I had it. Yeah. I used to have dreadlocks. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I had dreadlocks and I was in a work environment where I had been working there for a while and I went for, I was recommended to go for a promotion in another department and the person who ran the department really wanted me to work for them and they said, you'd be great, you just need to go through the HR process, go and have a conversation with HR and I went to, and at that time, my dreads were quite small. Mm. Eventually, they got down to here. They're bright red. But and for those who couldn't see that, they're, oh, just, they're pointing sorry. to the elbows. <laughs> yeah, they're pointing to my elbows. Um, but I went for this interview um, with HR, and the HR person said to me, oh, well, you know, everybody knows that you're great. It's just you're a little bit, your style is a little bit too exotic. And, you, you know, maybe if you had one of those straight hairdos, then you could be representative of the place. Yeah. I I um, took a breath, walked out, went and called the Black Law Society to find out where I stood and then sent an email to for clarification. And that's a whole other story, but mm. it has a happy ending in that I made choices about how I was going to deal with that mm. um, but when you're talking about whole selves mm-hmm. and diversity policies mm. these are all the things that how do you put that into a policy Yeah, about somebody's hair or uh, religious attire or mm. belief systems or cultural things mm. because are you going to you know you can't write everything down. Yeah. But it's that people still need to feel that they are, know, not even feel, they need to know that they are accepted and that they have a voice. Mm. And it's not just for the sake of congratulating themselves and saying, we've got a diversity group. Yeah. It's really powerful, isn't it? And I think when you first said hair, I was thinking, how can you legislate for hair? But as you describe that what we're really talking about is what do we actually need to shift in our culture and understanding and way of thinking and way of believing uh, in order to ensure that people both feel yeah. and know and believe. Yeah. Yeah, all of those, all of those things. It's um, Well, because I try not to use the word minority. I talk about uh, people who've been othered mm. because I think that that can then open up people's thinking about what that actually means. So it then helps people to relate to that a little bit better, so Mm. a little easier, not better, Mm. so that you can then start the conversation from Mm. that place of familiarity. And what I just said, move you into a bit is thinking about organisations and cultures within organisations. And you obviously work with organisations about their culture about helping them to make their choices and about getting the right behaviors yep. in place um if you think about the the journey mm-hmm. 
whether you come in right at the very beginning or before the beginning <laughs> sometimes or part of the way through, what is that journey of improving the culture of an organisation so that everybody feels welcome and included? Well, culture to me is about collective storytelling. Then we, we can then have many uh, manifestations of that, so art or music or what have you is also culture. But we have, all, when we're talking for the purposes of this, mm. organisational culture is there tends to be a gap between the external projection of what that culture is. Mm. This is our strapline, this is our vision, these are the shiny brochures that we have. But internally there's something different happening. And so there tends to be that gap. And what I do is help people to work out what that gap is um, and look at how do we then start to bridge that gap. And I have developed a framework called the Four Freedoms, which is what I tend to use mm-hmm. as a guiding principle. So the Four Freedoms are the the whole purpose of it is how do you get to this place of creating an ecosystem or a culture that is in flow? Mm-hmm. The Four Freedoms are identity, culture, economics, and ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Identity is how do you bring your full self mm-hmm. to what you're doing? How can you be unapologetically yourself? What have you? However you see that, but what's your personal story? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff we've spoken about already. Culture is what's the gap between the external story and the internal behaviours and bridging that gap. And that's where sometimes diversity and inclusion comes into that language. Um, economics is not necessarily about money, but it's about the measure of success. Okay. But it's also how do you make the whole system sustainable? So production, consumption, impact, how you make that sustainable. But what happens is if you work on identity, culture and economics, the fourth bit, the ecosystems change because people recognise their potential. Mm-hmm. They have a better sense of their potential because your measures of success should also be human. And from taking people through that process, because yeah. um, I suspect everybody here is going, I'd love to, and some people will be going, but. <laughs> what have you learnt from that sort of, from working with organisations about how it can really change things for the better? So... One of the unintended consequences of that process is that sometimes you will have people who suddenly go, I need to leave, because they realise that that is not the place for them. Mm. And I think that that's a good thing as well, Mm -hmm. because the whole process is about, first of all, recognising who you are and what's important to you and what are your values and all those things Mm. and what's the bigger story. And so that's an unintended consequence. But I think that that's also healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and going through that process as an organisation, when they come out the other side, what t- tends to happen is that there's a new, a renewed sense of pride and connection to the bigger vision. People recognise why they are the best person placed to be doing the particular role that they are. Mm. And there is a sense of autonomy that people will volunteer because of their outside skills, interests or what have you. They reconnect with that and volunteer to take on a new initiative or to lead it or to get involved in things. And so it fundamentally can change Mm. that sense of belonging and engagement. Thank you. Um, and and the, I guess the, the just to take us right back to whole self yep. yeah, and belonging and engagement, I wonder if you could talk us through a time 
that you either felt like you really belonged and people wanted all of you <laughs> or or actually there was a bit of playing the game and didn't feel able to take your whole self and the impact positive or negative of either of those scenarios thinking specifically about workplace yeah <laughs> Yeah, because my, you know, my first thought was not the workplace. Um, I saw your, saw your, your mind go for just a moment yeah. to clarify. So I used to work at an organisation where, and this is where I first started to find my voice mm. in an organisation. I'd been working there for a few years and had this perception, I think we do, I'm not younger, but we have this perception of this is who I have to be in the work environment. Mm. And I, you know, this is who I have to be. This is how I have to behave. And I've always been a person that smiles a lot and laughs a lot and laughs like a foghorn. But in this building of, I've got to be really quiet and this is how I have to be, but not saying anything. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I couldn't because... Well, who am I? They're not going to listen to me. I've just started here and, you know, they've been working here for, you know, and they've got all these titles and what have you. And I have to take some responsibility for that because I was putting other people on the pedestal Mm -hmm. and forgetting that they're actually just human as well Mm -hmm. with their own vulnerabilities and what have you. But there was an amazing woman who worked there. I will give her a shout out, Marina Palumba. Um, She said to me, you've got a voice, use it. I can see your brain ticking away with all these kind of conversations and you don't necessarily agree, but you're not saying anything. So just say it. Just don't be afraid to say it. Just ask the question or what have you. And so I was like, oh, I've got an ally. Right. I can do this. So bit by bit, I would start to ask questions or, I mean, my heart was pounding, my hands were sweating, but it was this, okay, so could you clarify this point? Or actually, I disagree with that because of this. Um, And the more I did that, the more people went, oh, wait a minute, okay. Actually, she's got a point. And sometimes, you know, I was wrong. But what I also found was that I was sometimes asking the question other people in the room wanted answering. Mm. It then built a level of trust in me in my opinions, in the fact that I could challenge what was being said, but not doing it in a, I disagree with you, but actually it was more a yes and type approach to to that. Um, And I would say that it was linked to the fact that I then got promoted and was given more responsibility and more outwardly facing roles. And, you know, eventually... I was able to kind of just run with things. So it built trust, it built, it also built my confidence. And what was lovely, just watching what happened as you described that, is your whole stature grew for about 30 seconds as (laughs) you described it. Your shoulders went up, your hands went up, your face beamed. Yeah, Yeah. it was just, yeah. So I guess, yeah, that reminder, the power of an ally and helping people to find their voice. Yeah. Yeah, and the ally can be anywhere. Finding, well, two sides, finding and being an ally Mm. for people Mm. is more powerful than I think some people recognise. Yeah. And I also always remember when a person first said to me, don't ever put anyone on a pedestal. They can only fall and that's not fair on them. Yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, when you're you're the other side of, uh, of that too. 
the role of technology, the role of social media is one of your bread and yep. butters. <laughs> one of your many <laughs> bread and butters. Um, and you obviously are passionate about our relationship as human beings with technology. Do you just want to tell yep. us a bit about that? For the last five-ish years, I have been, I mean, initially for myself, just looking at our behaviour around the use of tech mm -hmm. because what I saw was that the way that we use technology is as if we're looking for a new religion. It's the way that I describe it. We're looking for something bigger than ourselves. Technology is just a tool. Yep. And I think that what tends to happen is that people put this kind of, it, tech is going to save us. We are the ones that are designing that. Mm. And so we also have to take responsibility and accountability for what we build into that and the ethics of all of that. And that's a whole different conversation. But our behaviour around the use of tech has become more and more ritualistic. Um, and we... So down to how people use social media, I was doing a talk once and I met a young woman who had ended up in the Priory, mm. at the, the clinic, because she became addicted to likes on Instagram. She's a social media influencer and that became her whole persona, mm. her whole life. And so she disassociated from who she really was and became this version of herself that she felt that she had to live up to. And it affected her mental health. Mm. But it's a real thing. Of course, of course. Can I just um, sort of do a dotted line, yep. I guess, across for a moment? You talked earlier about two and a half burnouts yeah and just be interested to hear a bit more about that and any lessons from the, the experience that you would be generous enough to share yeah. with people um the, so the first thing I would say about burnouts is that just from lots of conversations I've had people have or the, the the feedback that I had initially was that people thought that really you only have a burnout if you're working for somebody else. And my burnouts happened when I only happened when I was working for myself because I put more pressure on myself to um, to succeed, but also because you don't have the security blanket of that regular sustainable income. Mm. I mean, we've got this, you know, we've got the coronavirus now as somebody who is you know, runs my own business, I'm seeing the impact that that is having on individual business owners that I know because mm. it impacts travel, it impacts all sorts of things, it impacts a lot of the ways that you operate. Mm. So mine came, the first one, three three years ago, three or four years ago, working really hard, um, doing it was around doing a lot of the personal brand identity stuff. Uh, running workshops and coaching and all sorts of stuff. And it was this constant, okay, I need to do better. I need to find more clients. I need to do all this stuff. And I generally don't necessarily need a lot of sleep. I know, you know, there are statistics that say you actually need more sleep than, but I, but my body, if I sleep too long, that my body starts to hurt and I, I need to, I recognize that as that's also not probably healthy. Yeah. But what happened was on generally I was sleeping most nights, three, four hours, four, five hours. Mm. I got to the point where I was sleeping two hours. And I was like, yeah, no, I can do this. It's fine. Sleeping two hours. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm smashing through it. I am working really hard. I've got these goals. I'm working towards it. I stopped socialising 
and I stopped anything that wasn't focused on me trying to achieve these goals was somehow seen as a waste of time. I'm taking I'm taking time away from what I need to be doing and I just need to keep pushing through. And I flew to Berlin to go and do, I was running a, I had designed a personal workshop for a client, executive, this guy who runs his own business um, and he wanted intensive coaching. So mm-hmm. I had designed a personal workshop for him. I was there for two days and felt a bit wobbly. I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm coming down with something. I don't know. I just don't feel right, but I've got to be on form and I've got to get through this. And so did the first day session, smashed it. It was great. Went back to the to the apartment and I was like, oh, I just need to sleep. But I was still quite antsy. I was like, I don't know why I feel like this, but I had friends in Berlin. And so I said to them, like, I've got another day work and I'm going to be here for the weekend. Let's go out. And uh, did the second day, and I was still. It was. It felt like a. My friend describes it. It felt like a nuclear reactor going off inside of me. Mm. It was this bubbling up, and I've never had depression. I've, you know, I think we all have the blues sometimes, but this was different. It was this level of anxiety and physical shaking and can't make any decisions about anything <laughs> and so I did the session got back to the apartment and went okay I'll do I'll do some yoga I'll do but again it's the I can't an hour's too long to take out to do yoga so I'll do five minutes of yoga I'll do hit yoga high intensity yoga because I can manage five minutes without taking away from work and so then I was getting ready I was like right I'm gonna get ready to go meet my friends and I got ready and I was about to go out the door and I opened the door and I couldn't step through it. And I was just going, what's wrong with me? I, I, I love going out. What's wrong? And I just burst into tears and I just couldn't stop crying. And I was shaking and I didn't want to tell my friends or anything. But what I did is I actually rang my best friend and she just allowed me to cry. And it wasn't just sobbing. It was this big physical shaking and crying and and I just went oh my god something's wrong something's wrong and so I then started to look into the symptoms and spoke to people and realized that I had burnt out and so it was a long process of actually kind of coming back from that and what I did was I said that I need to Remind myself if I'm co- if I was coaching a client, I would give them all the advice in the world. So you know about put a meeting in your diary that is for you, if you, especially if you other people have access to your your calendar. Create a meeting in your diary that is for you that is just as a meeting. Nobody else needs to know who it's for. Mm. And so I had these kind of meetings in the diary. I mean, the second one was not as bad. But it was, again, getting to that point of going, oh, I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. And then just went, oh, I've done it again. And then the halftime was that I recognised straight away that something, well, I recognised that something was happening because I, was, I wasn't sleeping as well. Mm. Um, and I was saying to my friends, oh, I'm too busy. 
I'm too busy to catch up and or I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to meditate, which is bonkers. Because if we can't take even an hour a week for ourselves, something is fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Gemacy. And I think it is, yeah, that first bit, isn't it, of all the things which, yeah, I mean, my I said this on numerous cases, my granny would be like eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours play. Yeah, and she's been a long time dead. So this is wisdom, which yeah. if all of us could... Um, uh, uh, live by, but of course our lives get busier, and that bit of actually whether it's an hour, two hours, three hours is taking the time for yeah. ourselves. But we we forget that time is a man-made concept or a human-made concept mm. that we say that we I don't have time, and you know time's running away with me. We can pull that all back mm-hmm. and just prioritize. So now what I do, my practices now is I have, and I'm fortunate. Well, yeah, in some ways I'm fortunate enough to have done been able to do it, but I think that it's really important to my own mental health is that 80% of my time in my diary is work currently because I'm building a new business. 20% is social, is uh, but of that social, it doesn't always have to include other people. Mm. So I take myself on dates and I love it. I will take myself off. There's an exhibition I want to go to rather than waiting for someone, you know, dress up, what have you, and I'll go to the exhibition and I'll go on a date or with myself um, because that also teaches you to be comfortable with yourself mm. in your own space. Mm. Um, I sometimes have what I call mental rest days or mornings where I just go, I'm not going to go on social media, I'm not going to talk to anybody and I'm just going to sit with my own thoughts and I generally have a notebook or something at the side in case an idea pops up but I don't examine it so it happened this morning I've been thinking about something for ages and it just wasn't getting there and I went you know what I'm just going to have a bit of a lie-in let go and just before I decided that I need to get up suddenly these ideas started popping into my head I'm like oh wait oh yeah and that okay and that and that and making these lists and actually we forget that by pushing ourselves so hard, we are actually pushing ourselves down a narrower tunnel. Mm. And we need to have that space to connect the dots in everything that we are and get inspiration from different places. Couldn't agree with you uh, more. I remember the first time uh, my assistant here said, why have you got um, uh, blocks in your diary saying home? Like Because otherwise somebody will yeah. take the slot. Uh, yeah, so just that sense of... Yeah, we need to rest and our brains need to join things for ourselves rather than being forced, sitting in front of the email, you know, responding to other people's agenda rather than allowing our own creativity. But when I just when when I look back, that time those times when I used to say to clients, I need to go to Burning Man, that was it. But what I was doing is it, it was I was saving all of that up for that one time. Mm. And actually that's not healthy either. That I think that we need to find create balance. Mm. And not be afraid, especially when you're working in the work environment, not be afraid to say that I just need to think about this. I think sometimes people just feel that they have to give an answer now. I have to respond now. I've got to. And actually just taking, sometimes taking that time to step back and consider and go, okay, let me just process this. Mm. You can actually move further forward by doing that. You've um, 
said a bit about some of the rest that you take and taking the time for yourself. My question was going to be, how do you do self-care? But I think what yeah. I've heard is go on your dates, yep. create time for yourself, yep. have a lie-in. Uh, be creative. Yeah. Be creative. So I make crazy headdresses. It's a slight, uh, yeah, kind of a side hustle as a milliner. You know, there is a mindfulness and it activates a different part of our brain when we go and do something creative. But we need to change our environment. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I do. I deliberately choose to change my environment or my the way that my brain operates because it, it, I then find it richer. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. What a journey. Yeah. What, what a story and thank you for sharing it with us and I know that other people enjoy listening as much as I have thank you it's yeah I've really enjoyed it so thank you very much for listening to this conversation with Ada I continue to be envious that she has been to Burning Man and I will be taking a look at the 10 principles of Burning Man myself before we go, just to say a huge thank you for tuning in. These are difficult times for everyone and I really hope that the podcast is a bit of light relief and opportunity to think about some other things in amongst everything else that's going on. Please don't worry, the first five episodes were recorded well before the outbreak of COVID-19 in the UK and we haven't been risking anything. We are taking full notice of the social distancing advice and guidance. Any further episodes will be done remotely, just as I'm recording this outro from my kitchen table. Please do remember to subscribe, rate and review. Let us know how you're enjoying the second series and let us know how you're taking care of yourselves and each other in these extraordinary times. We'll be back next week, but for now, I'm Simon Blake and thanks for coping with us. <laughs>